Good morning, everyone. Could you open your Bibles to John chapter 2? Andrea's going to read our text today, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. If you want to follow along on your pew Bibles, it's on page 751. John 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in, in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Amen. This is God's word. And the scripture just sounds better in an English accent, doesn't it? <laughs> I think I, Andrea should do an audio Bible in her spare time. Well, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. I've called this message from this text a scandal, a riddle, and a scruple. And I'm hoping that will uh, whet your appetite to find out what exactly we mean by these three things, a scandal, a riddle, and a scruple. But just before we get into that, I just want to give one more quick plug for the spiritual disciplines class that's going to start on March 1st. Some of us have a vision to uh, provide classes here at Wallenstein that would be kind of like a mini Bible college. And this course would fall into that category. I know that many of you are in small groups, which is great. So I just want to simply give one plug to, uh, to all of you uh, who are in small groups, that if you would like to do this course as a small group, uh, this is a way to kill two birds with one stone. You can come and learn uh, the lessons of this course and still be with your small group. So I want to encourage you as small groups to consider would you enjoy taking eight weeks off from your usual uh, small group venue and study and come and do this course? If there's group work during the, during the, the lesson, you can do that as, uh, as a group. Uh, snack time, I mean, you can even talk to someone who's not in your group if you want to. But if you really want to stick together as a group, you certainly can do that during this course. So hope that uh, many of you will consider uh, doing that study together. John chapter 2, 13 to 25, a scandal, a riddle, and a scruple. We start with the scandal, and actually this passage breaks down pretty easily into three sections. 
And we begin with Jesus in verse 13, coming to Jerusalem as the Jewish people not only wanted to do, but needed to do, had to do, to celebrate the Jewish Passover. They had to travel, make the journey to Jerusalem. And when Jesus gets there, he goes up into the temple courts and he finds people selling cattle, sheep and doves. And this is where the scandal begins. The first thing I want you to realize is that this scandal that we're about to read about in John chapter two is one of many in the ministry and in the life of Jesus. In fact, we can say this, that it was his ministry to be scandalous. He purposely chose to, by his miracles, by his words, by his deeds, he was on purpose trying to and choosing to scandalize People. Now what's interesting is one of the Greek words we find in the gospel is this one. I'm not sure I know how to say it well. Uh, but it's the Greek word from which we get our English word scandal. So let me show you some ways that this word is used uh, here in the gospel of Matthew. In these two examples, Jesus, after, or the disciples come to Jesus after he had said some things the Pharisees didn't like. So the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were scandalized when they heard this? That's the Greek word that I just showed you. The word offended here is the word scandalized. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus could say, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's the, it's the word scandal. Blessed is anyone who's, who's not scandalized by me. So here's what Jesus is doing. He is purposely scandalizing people in, in a way that separates those who believe from those who don't believe. He's stirring the pot, he's rattling uh, the cage, he's especially, he's, he's attempting to demonstrate to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders that the way that they're teaching faith and living out their, uh, their Jewish faith is all wrong. So Jesus, think about I don't know if you've ever thought about this, some of the many scandals. We just saw one last week. I mean, anyone in, in our culture, in our con conservative Christianity, I mean, uh, probably some of us were surprised that last week's message on Jesus turning water into wine wasn't just about how bad alcohol was, right? The fact that Jesus, and do you know how much wine he made? I actually preached on that two years ago and I brought in one of those huge barrels. It was two of those, 125 gallons of wine that Jesus made. Was it grape juice? No, it was wine. It's very clear in the passage that it was wine. So we can talk about that, but actually what's more interesting is where did Jesus make the wine? He told the servants to pour the water into six big pots, pots that were used for ceremonial cleansing among the Jewish people. It was not a cleansing that was found in the Old Testament. It was a cleansing that the Pharisees had created so that they could be legalistic, so that they could, they could make faith very much about do's and don'ts and rules. And it was in those pots that were only meant for water to ceremonially wash your hands so that everyone could see how holy you were. It was in those pots that Jesus turned water into wine. Scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Chapter four is another scandal. Jesus says to his disciples as they're about to travel north back to his homeland, we need 
to go through Samaria. Do you remember that? We need to go through Samaria. I, you, I wish we could be a fly on the wall to see the faces of the disciples who were Jewish, who had the same prejudices as everyone else in, in their land at that time, who hated the Samaritan people. They would never travel through Samaria. No one ever needed to go through Samaria, but Jesus did. And as they're traveling through Samaria, Jesus sends the disciples into a Samaritan village, which I think is hilarious because they didn't want to go into the Samaritan village. They didn't want to have to talk to a Samaritan. But they go in and buy some food, and while they're there, Jesus ends up talking to a Samaritan woman. And she even says, what are you, a Jewish man, doing talking to me, a Samaritan woman? She couldn't even believe it. And then in the course of conversation, it comes out that she's been married to five different men which is not necessarily a scandal in our time, but in that time, this was a woman that no righteous person, Jewish person, would ever speak to on purpose. But Jesus did. And in fact, after he convinces her that he's the Messiah, and she runs back into the village and tells everyone, they invite Jesus to stay. And in John chapter four, it says, they stayed a few more days. In the Samaritan village, my favorite is in John chapter 5. Jesus is walking by a pool in Jerusalem. You can flip over and look at it if you want to. You'll see the heading there, start of chapter 5. There's this pool called the Sheep Gate, or near the Sheep Gate. And beside it is a man laying there disabled. There was some kind of superstition here that when the waters got stirred up, probably by a flow of water that came from outside of the city, uh, there was a superstition that the first person in, the first sick or lame person into the water would be healed. Jesus sees a guy there, and it says he's been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in the condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So Jesus says to him, now listen, get up pick up your mat and walk. And at once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, what is the very next crucial detail that John's going to give us about this miracle? The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And as soon as people saw the man carrying his mat on the Sabbath, even the people who knew he'd been lame, they didn't say, whoa, dude, you can walk. They said, whoa, dude, it's the Sabbath. You're carrying your bed. The way that Jesus healed this guy in John chapter 5 was by telling him to break the Sabbath. Now, according to the rules of the Pharisees, right? Do you see that? He healed the man by telling him to break the Sabbath, and if he would have the faith and the guts to stand up and walk with his bed, he could be healed. And the Jewish people were scandalized. We could go on and on. John chapter 6, Jesus tells people, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Scandalous to the Jewish people. It goes on and on in the Gospel of John, in all of the other Gospels as well. It was one scandal after another, and every one was highly purposeful. So we come back to John chapter 2. And in verse 15... We read this, Jesus here, made a whip out of cords 
Now, I, I find this funny to think about. Because Jesus, by this time, had some disciples who were following him. And uh, I can almost see them. They get into the temple courts, and suddenly it's like, well, where did Jesus go? And they look over, and they see Jesus sitting over here, uh, over by the wall or somewhere off on his own. And he's doing something. What is he doing? The disciples go over, and Jesus, what are you, what are you doing, Jesus? And they look closer, and they, they, they're looking at what he's got in his hands, and he's got some cords of leather or, or some, some, something. We don't know exactly what it was, and he's braiding. What are you doing, Jesus? Of course, the disciples, the whole idea of being a disciple is you do what the rabbi does. So if he's braiding, well, maybe I, maybe I should find some cords and braid. What are you making, Jesus? You'll see. See, the cool thing here is that a single strand of leather wasn't good enough for what he was about to do. He needed multiple strands of leather. He needed to braid those into a very firm cord, which he was about to use as a whip on other human beings. Do you realize what is happening here? Not only is he going to use this whip on human beings, he's going to do it in the temple courts. Not only is it going to be in the temple courts, he's going to use this whip on people who were selling animals for sacrifices to God. What is going on here? I mean, if you were Andrew or John or Peter, you'd be like, oh my, what have I gotten myself into here? And yet the scandal that we're seeing here is what I'm going to simply call the wrath of Jesus. If we are going to be followers of Christ, if we are going to be believers in God's word, we have to grapple with this truth that God is a God of wrath. God gets angry. God brings judgment and punishment. And the wrath of Jesus is one of the ways that we actually see that lived out in real life. Remember what Jesus would say later in the Gospel of John to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you've seen the wrath of Jesus, the anger of Jesus, what we're seeing in that is the anger of the Father. Now we tread lightly here because none of us are Jesus and none of us are God. And in fact, the Bible warns us about anger. It says, be angry and do not sin. What that means is, it's possible for us to have righteous anger if if it's something that God gets angry about. If you're angry because your, uh, uh, your neighbor's lawnmower uh, sprayed his clippings onto your side of the line, not sure God's terribly concerned about that. But if we're angry about things like abortion or injustices in our time, if we're angry about those things, it's okay to be angry, but even then God warns us and says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the thing that has to happen when we have righteous, first of all, if, you, if your anger is not righteous, then you need to repent and do away with it. But even if your anger is righteous, you need to heed God's word, which says don't let the sun go down on your anger. And what that means is transfer your anger back to the one who knows how to handle it, and that is God. So when we find ourselves angry, what we have to do is first of all ask, is this something that God is angry about? Yes or no? If not, then you need to stop being angry. If it is something that God is angry about, then even then, I need to learn to transfer my anger back to God because I can't handle it. 
anger. Um, in my own person, in my body, in my emotions. If I try to hold on to anger, I will damage myself. God is the only one who can manage anger and wrath perfectly, doesn't harm him. We are not able to do that. So if you're sitting in this room and if you uh, are holding on to a bitterness in your life towards someone in your family or uh, a boss, a coworker, someone in your life, it's actually hurting you and harming you. And you need to learn by God's grace and help and maybe with the help of someone else what it looks like to forgive and in forgiving to transfer that anger back to God who himself is the righteous judge. So here we see the anger of Jesus, the wrath of Jesus. This helps us understand when we think of God as a God of judgment, when we think of something like eternal wrath and punishment, when we think about hell, it's a concept that's really hard for us to understand. I, I believe this story gives us a little bit of insight into God's wrath and judgment because we see it lived out in the person, the perfect person of Jesus. What was Jesus so angry about? Well, we read about it in verse 14 where it says that he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So here's what was going on in the temple. We'll call it exploitation. Or you could call it as one person said, this was a racket. This was, this was a hustle. People were taking advantage of others. So here's how this worked. The priests had power and authority over the temple grounds. So what they did is almost like a franchise they would sell the right to sell animal sacrifices or to, change, to be a money changer. They would sell that right to someone who would then set up a booth in the temple. And so when people like Jesus traveled from way up in the north, rather than having to bring an animal sacrifice with them, they could just bring some money with them and then they could buy their lamb or their sacrifice right there in the temple courts. Problem was, a couple of problems. Common money of the day was the money you see on the left. That was a Roman denarius. Israel was occupied by Rome. Roman culture had uh, permeated even Rome, the Roman economy, and so the common money that you would use day to day was Roman money. So on the left is a denarius. But when you came to the temple, of course the Jewish, the priests, would not accept Roman money to purchase an animal sacrifice to be offered to God. So you had to have a Jewish shekel, which is what you see on the right. Now imagine, and any, any of you who've traveled to the US know how this racket works, don't you? You go to the bank, so what's the exchange rate? Oh, it's about, uh, about 75% or something like that. And you change your money and you, you're looking at what you get in American funds, this can't be right. And then when you're done your trip, you bring your $15 of American money back to the bank and you, you get about 16 Canadian. Well, this can't be right. Well, that's what was happening here. The priests would sell a franchise to someone who was allowed to set up a booth as a money changer, but they were just exploiting people. There's nowhere else in the city where you could get this done. So, hey, we got you over a barrel here. We're going we're gonna to fleece you. You're going to give us all this Roman money, and we'll give you a few Jewish shekels. And then you'd take your Jewish she shekels over to the place where you want to buy your lamb for a sacrifice and you can't believe the prices. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if the Jewish priests had the authority to shut down the markets outside of the temple during Passover time. 
so that if you wanted to buy a lamb, you couldn't just go down to the street to the normal market and get normal price. You had to buy it at the temple, and it was overpriced. This is what was going on. It's exploitation. Notice how angry Jesus gets here in verse 16. Notice, notice the emphasis. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's really interesting how John fires up the story here in, in terms of the anger of Jesus when he mentions the doves. Why the doves, John? Because Leviticus had said this, anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. You might remember that this is the offering that Jesus' own parents brought when he was being dedicated at the temple eight days, I believe, after his birth. And it tells us there in the Gospel of Luke that they brought birds. Do you see what this is? This is the poor man's offering. I mean, if you could afford a lamb, you'd buy the lamb, you should. But if you couldn't afford that, then you could buy or acquire doves or pigeons for your sacrifice. So do you see what, why Jesus is so angry here? Because even the poor people who couldn't afford the lamb were still getting fleeced as they bought the poor person's offering and Jesus couldn't. He, he would not stand for that exploitation in the house of God. This was so contrary to what God has taught his people. The temple was a place where the people of God would gather to worship God and offer their sacrifices, where the world, other nations would look on, and I'm sure there were many, uh, many visitors from other places who would come just to observe what was happening in Jerusalem. And instead of seeing what God had ordained for his people, a kindness a concern for the poor, uh, forbidding them to take advantage of each other, Leviticus 25. And instead what people saw was exploitation, the Jewish people exploiting one another and in particular those who were poor. And Jesus wouldn't stand for this. Do you see what was happening? The priests who were like the religious authorities of the time were allowing a system within the very house of God that was completely contrary to the nature of God and to the character of God. And Jesus wouldn't stand for it. Now this is scandalous. Some guy from up in Nazareth, some guy nobody knows, comes in here. This is early in his ministry. People hadn't necessarily come to hear about him yet. And he's driving, like he's using the whip, right? The whip is not just a prop here. He's driving the animals out. He's kicking over tables. He's chasing these people out of the temple courts. It's no wonder that, especially in John's gospel, from very early on in his ministry, the priests and the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. He was, he was taking away their opportunity for money, for wealth, Verse 17 says, his disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Notice what Jesus had said in verse 16. Stop turning my father's house into a market. This concept of the house of God permeates the Bible and it should fill us with joy 
and gratitude for God himself. When we, when we start off in the Bible and we read about the Garden of Eden and how God provided in the Garden of Eden for his people, he made a place for them, he provided food for them and water for them, and especially we read that God was there. God's heart has always been, had always been from the very beginning to have a people for himself who would reside with him, who would be at home with him. And sadly, in Genesis chapter 3, the first human beings chose to run away from home. And the story of the rest of the Bible is God pursuing us in our wickedness and seeking to be at home with us again. So in the Old Testament, God ordained first the tabernacle, a tent that would be set up in the very midst of the people when they're in the wilderness before they went into the promised land, the tent would be set up right in the midst of the camp. God would dwell there right in the middle of the people. And of course, there were restrictions. You had to bring sacrifices. You couldn't barge into that place. But this was God's desire, his effort. Later, tabernacle became the temple. It was God's house. It was his desire to dwell in the midst of the people. It was his desire for his people to shine brightly from his house so that the other nations could see God's beauty and be drawn to him. And yet, this place, God's house, had been turned into a market. Jesus was zealous for his father's house, for what it stood for, because his whole purpose in coming was to restore the family of God, God reunited to sinners. So Jesus fearlessly drove these people from the temple, knowing how scandalous it would be in order to demonstrate to all the truth of what God's house was meant to be. Scandal. Well, immediately, in verse 18, we find the Jews, and not surprisingly, questioning Jesus. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? How can you just barge in here and do this? So to tell us, prove to us, show us somehow that you have the authority to do what you just did. And so we come to what I'm going to call the riddle. In verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now in the context of the story, when you hear Jesus say, destroy this temple, we would immediately assume what these people assumed. Verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're gonna raise it in three days. So because this whole story had taken place at the temple, in the temple courts, now he's being questioned at the temple, and so when he says, we'll destroy this temple and I'll I'll build it again in three days. It's obvious. Everyone is going to assume he's thinking of what was known as Herod's temple, the temple that they were standing in in that moment, or at least in the courts of that temple. This, of course, though, is a kind of riddle. It is what I'll call veiled truth, and it's very consistent with the way Jesus often spoke. In fact, Matthew 13 tells us why Jesus spoke in parables. He often spoke in parables, these stories that had kind of poignant truth, but often veiled truth. So his disciples would say to him, like, why, why do you talk in these parables? 
And this is why he gave this answer. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And then the important part. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes and they have closed. Sorry, we better get that right. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Was Jesus purposely trying to hide truth from people who desperately wanted it and needed it? No, he was not. He was purposely veiling truth from those whose hearts were hard, who were set against not just him, but they were set against the God of creation, the God of the Old Testament. That is why Jesus spoke in parables. And so here's what would happen. And we see this play out in the gospel stories. Jesus speaks in a parable. He gives the parable of the sower where there's, there's seed that falls on the path and seed that falls on the rocks and seed that falls in the thorns and then seed that falls in the good soil. And what we have happen right after is the disciples go to Jesus and they say, what does this mean? And what they're revealing is, number one, they want to know the truth. Number two, they believe that Jesus is the source of the truth. So when Jesus gives a riddle or a parable, If your heart is right, you will pursue Jesus until you understand. Because you you know he's speaking truth, you know he can explain it to you. But if you hear a parable and a riddle and your heart is set against Jesus, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to scoff, you're going to ridicule, and you're going to walk away. That's exactly what happens in the Gospels. See, the, the riddle, the parable, was a way of sifting out between those whose hearts were soft and right towards God and those whose hearts were hard. I suspect there's probably people here this morning who uh, struggle in some way with doubts about the faith, but your heart is soft, which is why you're here. Sometimes we struggle with doubts about our faith and, and, and we just become really afraid and, and, and anxious because we're, we're struggling to believe and yet your anxiety about your doubts actually proves the softness of your heart. When you have doubts with a hard heart, you don't care. You're certainly not going to come to church. You don't have an open mind. You don't have open ears. But when you have anxiety about your doubts of the faith, it proves that your heart is soft. And you need to do exactly what, what, what the disciples of Jesus did. They pursued him until they understood. They knew he was the source of truth. They trusted him with the, excuse me, with the answers. So Jesus spoke in riddles. Of course, there's, as I said, this is veiled truth. So it's actually interesting to back up and say, okay, so Jesus, Jesus said destroy this temple, and then John actually tells us what he meant, doesn't he? Destroy this temple. Um, verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Oh, now I get it. He was put in the grave three days later, he rose again. When he said, destroy this temple and three days later, I I will raise it again in three days, he was talking about his resurrection. And suddenly we begin to realize that there's veiled truth here, that when Jesus spoke of himself as a temple, he wasn't just trying to be cryptic, he wasn't trying to throw them off, he was actually speaking very truthfully about his own identity. What was the temple all about? Number one, the Jewish temple was about the presence of God. In the center of the temple was, was that uh, 
holiest of holies, the mercy seat, the place where God was enthroned. It was all about the presence of God. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to understand, I have come as the presence of God. We saw that a couple of weeks ago and we hear Jesus talking about how there was this uh, stairway to heaven and, and the angels ascending and descending and referring back to that vision that Jacob had had in the book of Genesis. And what he was saying is, you're gonna see, you're gonna experience the presence of God through my life. What else was the temple about? The temple was about atoning sacrifice. Lambs, goats, sacrificed, blood shed to cover over the sins of the people. So Jesus could rightly refer to himself as the temple because he is, would be, the ultimate atoning sacrifice. Hebrews would later say this, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. So we remember this crucial aspect of the temple was there was this holiest of holies, the place where God was enthroned and separating off that portion of the temple from the rest was this thick curtain or veil. And the gospels tell us that when Jesus died, when he finally breathed his last breath, the curtain in the temple was torn, supernaturally torn, top to bottom, God did it. And what he was saying is because of the death of Jesus, the way to me has now been opened. And the writer of Hebrews takes it a step further and says, yeah, it wasn't just the curtain of the temple that was torn in two, it was the body of Jesus that was torn in two. It was through the sacrifice of his own body that the way to God was made open. There was a scandal here, Jesus clearing the temple. There was a riddle here, Jesus claiming to be the temple, and now we come to the third thing, the scruple. Now, how many of you have used the word scruple in the last seven days? Anyone? A scruple is an ethical, you know, I had to have a word that kind of sounded the same. Uh, scruple is an ethical consideration or principle that inhibits action to show reluctance on grounds of conscience. So I'm suggesting to you that's exactly what we find in these final verses. Verse 23, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. We read that verse and we say, great, Jesus. This is exactly, this is exactly what you want. This is exactly why you came. You perform your miracles and your signs. You do your teaching. You make your scandalous uh, appearances and people believe in you. But what you need to understand is that often the word believe, when it's used in the Gospel of John, or at least some of the time, if I were translating this into English, I would put quotation marks around the word. Because sometimes in John's gospel, he uses the word to believe in the ultimate way, in the true way, in the way that God intends for people to respond to him with genuine faith and belief. And then other times, John uses the exact same word, but it's clear in context that it is a shallow belief. It's belief in quotation marks. We know that from verse 24. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but 
Jesus would not entrust himself, here's the scruple, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. When I read this verse, I think about John chapter 6, which I referred to early. It's a a long chapter. It's the feeding of the 5,000 to begin with, and then out of that, John often puts a miracle together with a teaching. So Jesus feeds 5,000, he creates bread, and then he's going to teach the people about spiritual bread, and he's gonna make that outlandish statement that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. We won't go into the explanation and meaning of that. But what we find in John chapter six tells us that many of his disciples Many of the people who had believed in him, in the sense that we find here in verse 24, John tells us they left him and followed him no more. It's part of the story of John's gospel is, yeah, there's all these people who gather around Jesus and believe in him. They say they're with him. They, 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 they say that he's the Messiah, but it doesn't last. And so it was part of the scruples of Jesus. I mean, if I was Jesus here, I'd be like, this is great. We should start a ministry. I should get on the radio. I should write a book. I should start getting paid. Look at all the people who are following me. This is great. But he would not entrust himself to them. Now understand this brothers and sisters. This is not saying anything about someone who is a genuine follower of Jesus because scripture tells us that if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, you have become a child of God. If you're a genuine follower of Jesus, the Bible tells us that you are a joint heir. It means that you're on the will now with Jesus. Everything that he inherits, you inherit. Scripture tells us that we can't fathom the height and breadth and depth and length of the love of Christ for us. Don't misunderstand this. This is not suggesting uh, some shallow commitment or love on Jesus' part from those who are truly his. No, it's simply demonstrating his discernment that he knows the difference between a person who says they believe and a person who will truly believe for salvation. This was the scruple of Jesus. I wonder if we've ever thought about that in our own lives. There is no doubt in my mind that in this room right now, there are people who believe in quotation marks. My heart, my my prayer today would be that somehow the Holy Spirit might reveal that to you, that your belief in Jesus is shallow and it's not saving faith. It's a belief that says, I like going to church. I see my friends there. My conscience gets a bit of a boost when I go to church. Makes me feel better about what I did yesterday. Ten or 15 years ago, this man wrote a book. It's an American pastor. His name's Kyle Eidelman. 
And he wrote this book called Not a Fan. And his book was about exactly this, exactly these verses that we're reading here at the end of John chapter two about this scruple of Jesus. That he wasn't looking for people who would crowd around him and say, rah, rah, we love you, Jesus. He wasn't looking to create a host of fans. He was looking for disciples. And that's the whole point of Kyle Eidemann's book here. Subtitle, Becoming a Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. You say, well, I I thought that we get saved by faith. I thought we just believe in Jesus. Yeah, but make sure you understand the the biblical meaning of the word belief. It's not just mentally agreeing with something. It's not just saying, well, I I believe that Jesus came. I believe that, I even believe Jesus died for me. No, belief is entrusting your life to Jesus. Belief is surrendering all to Jesus. That's when we demonstrate we really believe. And just think about it. How foolish would it be to say, well, I trust in Jesus. Okay, let's go do what he says. How about right now, this week? Let's go tell somebody about him. Uh, Let's give sacrificially just the way he taught us to. Let's, get, let's find a way to serve in his church. Let's love our enemies. How about that? You still trust Jesus? Oh yeah, I trust Jesus, but I don't want to do that stuff. And Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord? You don't do the things I say. And his point is, you're proving that you don't believe in me. It's just this rah, rah, I like Jesus. He, he, he benefits me in some, in some ways that I appreciate in my life, but I'm not actually trusting him with my life. To be all for Christ is to surrender all for Christ. That is the way we demonstrate that we truly believe. That is what Jesus was looking for and still is. That's why he would say, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So interesting to me how Jesus said these kinds of things when there was a crowd. In one of those places in John 14, you can, you can check it out. John 14, or sorry, Luke 14, 25, it tells us very clearly, there was a large crowd gathering around Jesus. And two verses later, he says this. To be all for Christ. To be all for Christ is what he's calling us to. To surrender all for Christ is what he's calling us to. May it be true. At Wallenstein Bible Chapel. We're going to sing in closing and I want you, I want you to pray your closing prayer today. And I think there are probably people here who are wrestling with this concept of being all for Christ Maybe you're wrestling with the reality that your belief in Jesus is in quotation marks because you haven't surrendered all for Christ. By the way, this is the reason why Jesus instituted baptism. It was a simple way to weed out fans from followers. Are you really committed to Jesus Christ? You'll do a hard thing. You'll publicly declare your faith. So we're gonna sing these two songs and then it's just gonna get quiet in here and I would like it to stay quiet. If you have any business to do with God, I hope that you'll do that. Uh, Any of our elders who are here, I hope you got your name tag. Uh, Some of us will be in the gym for those that are returning 
family commitments. Some of us will remain in here, if you would, gentlemen. And we're just going to be available to chat with you and anyone who wants to talk about what it means to truly believe in Jesus. So let's sing. Then we're going to remain quiet in this room. You're free to go anytime, but please remain quiet. And we'll do business with God.